Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm Kat Kinsman, Senior Editor at Food & Wine, and as usual, I am recording from my apartment in Brooklyn right now to pre-excuse any sounds from my uh, very enthusiastic dogs or my nice neighbors who seem to be having a guitar uh, (laughs) concert in the backyard. I looked, they're socially distanced, and (laughs) that is good. I am so privileged today to be able to share this conversation with Eric Williams of Virtue Restaurant in Chicago. Um, A a dear friend, Stacey Bayless, introduced me to Eric a few years ago, and I just immediately knew that he was somebody who I wanted to know, who who has had such a profound effect on the restaurant industry. Um, If you think you've heard the name Eric Williams on this podcast before, it's because you absolutely have, because I have discussed him with several chefs uh, about the mentorship that he has shown in the Chicago restaurant community. Um, He, 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 uh, has been at M- he was at MK restaurant for years and years and was at restaurants before that and oversaw uh the, he he had the, he had the stewardship of mentoring so many of the chefs who's uh who've gone on to do really tremendous things in the industry and become really stars in their own right and he's been doing the work um behind the scenes for a very very long time and with virtue he has gotten to open an absolutely extraordinary restaurant that is his voice and his vision and his leadership and his food and i knew that uh when covid hit that he was somebody who was going to really operate out of uh, compassion, first and foremost, for the people who work with him and also for the community. And he has responded to COVID uh, and everything that has happened around it um, with tremendous foresight and and grace and wisdom. And I, I knew that he would have some some of that to share with all of you. So I'm very, very excited to share this uh, conversation with you. But first, a word from our sponsor. Eric, thank you so much for being here today. I know it's a, just to set the scene right now, uh, James Beard Foundation has just announced that they are not announcing winners this year. And uh, you are in Chicago. I'm in Brooklyn. There might be noises from my end. My uh, neighbors are having a, a sort of jam fest on their guitars in the, uh, in the in their backyard. And you might hear that. You might hear my dog. What are you seeing in Chicago right now? Um, well, I haven't had a chance to see yeah. much other than a few text messages asking me what my thoughts are. Yeah. So... Do you have some that you have formed in this very short time about um, if we can set the scene about what just happened? So it's it's too soon for me to even have an emotional impact, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, um, I, I haven't had a chance to even read what the announcement is. Uh, my friends are ahead of me and my colleagues are ahead of me. Um, I'm, I'm sure that the Beard Foundation has done this with um, with a lot of contemplation and um, and a focus on the restaurant community as a whole. Um, mm. And I feel confident about that. So I, I won't, it'll be a little while before I formulate an opinion or a thought. About I, under- 
I understand that. And, and like, honestly, my, you know, this, this just came out. So just to tell folks what, what is happening, um, the Beard Foundation just sent out a uh, notice saying that they're not going to announce uh, the rest of the winners for the James Beard Awards um, this, this year and explain the reasoning behind it because this has been such a, just a, a grueling, taxing, trying, exhausting, horrible time for restaurants right now. And they had um, announced the semifinalists and I believe the, the finalists. And my heart is breaking for folks who've been in the industry for a really, really long time. And finally, we're going to have their, their chance for this. And it's not going to happen. I understand the reasoning on both sides uh, for this, for both wanting to recognize uh, restaurants and also for saying that this maybe now isn't the time. But when I think of you, uh, you are not a new name to people who listen to this podcast because several uh, guests I've had before have talked about the fact that you have been in this industry for 30 years. Is it 30 years at this point? A little, a little shy of 30 years. Yeah, I'm getting old. <laughs> I think I'm older than you, actually. But uh, it's... Uh, you are a person who has mentored and and got shaped and guided and taught uh, all of these chefs who still come to you for guidance. There's this like diaspora of, of Chicago chefs and probably beyond who they're not going to make a move in their career without calling Eric because you are trusted, because you have you have put that heart and soul in there. But until you opened your restaurant, your name wasn't on the marquee and you've been doing this work the whole time. Can we talk about your journey to sort of where you came from and how you opened uh, and how you came to open virtue? So, um, to start with my journey, um, yeah. I, I've been working in restaurants. Gosh, at least 25 years, two and a half decades, maybe a touch longer. Um, What's your first and, job? Uh, my first job in the restaurant community was was at a place by the name of Solar Bar and Grill, which is no longer. Mm -hmm. um, and I worked there um, for maybe a year. Um, so long ago, I, I really can't remember exactly how long. It, it, it was... <laughs> It was just some short order cooking for bar food, which gave me an introduction to working with, with heat, you know, yeah. and, and, and live fire in a, um, in a commercial setting. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I went from there to the Hudson Club, um, which was right up the block. Actually, I got laid off from Solar Bar and Grill and then went to the Hudson Club. And the Hudson Club was one of the first places to have um, what what is taboo now, um, being an eclectic <laughs> menu uh, with a hundred wines on tap, um, and it was frequented by stars like Michael Jordan and Dennis Rodman, and um, it was a pretty hip place to be at the time. And mm -hmm. it it served um, on its menu. Um, um, some things that were done in our wood-fired oven, um, a few, a few um, like ten-inch pizzas. Um, there was a um, 
a wood burning grill. Um, and <clears throat> the chef was Chef Paul Larson um, at the time. And, um, and at some point, um, um, Chef Todd Stein was brought on um, as the chef de cuisine. And that is where we first met each other. Um, and I did worked you just, there. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, did you just okay. find your place in here? Did it, did it just something about it resonate? Because you um, went from it, one restaurant to another. It did not. It did not resonate. I thought in the years that I spent between those two places that it, that restaurants were just a means to an end. Okay. I was I was very much um, aligned with the many servers back then that were mm -hmm. actors and actresses and waiting. Um, I, I believed that my path was going to be real estate. Oh. Um, I loved the ideal of um, space and design. <clears throat> I came from um, a community in Chicago by the name of Austin and another one by the name of Lawndale on Chicago's west sides. And um, there's a lot of a lot of um, um, divestment in those in those communities. And I wanted to create a sustainable practice that mm -hmm. allowed me to um, acquire property, um, rehab those properties, um, imagine what they were, you know, why the design was what it was at the time, you know, being 80 right. to 100 years prior, um, and, and reconfigure what that, um, what that design and format meant for um, uh, modern living. And also, I wanted to, um, you know, make decent money. I wanted to make a living. And I wanted to um, purchase properties within a three-by-three-mile radius because my mother walks. And mm -hmm. um, um, I, was, I was a bit of a rebellious teenager. Um, and <laughs> the heck caused, you say. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, I didn't get into good trouble back then. I got into the wrong kind of trouble. And, um, and so it, it brought a lot of joy to my heart and this ideal to be able to repurpose something that aided toward violence, um, and, and criminal activity, uh, mm -hmm. because, because, um, boarded up and uninhabited spaces um, become, um, you know, places to hide um, for folk mm -hmm. that, you know, that are um, um, predators. And um, my mom could walk past these places and see places that once were um, in distress and yes. now have the joy of knowing that her son um, had rehabbed those places. And so... Really, that idea was going on. Huh? Yeah. Sorry. That's just a really gorgeous and holistic way to look at it. Building is never just a building. It's part of a community. It's very much a part of a community and it can it can be a disservice to a community or it could be a service to a community. So you were saying Michael Cornett, he interviewed you for an hour. And what was he asking you? And what, how do you, at this, at this point, how were you feeling about restaurants? Is this, is it still a means to an end for you at this point? 
So restaurants are definitely not a means to an end anymore. Um, interestingly enough, um, I started working with Michael. Yeah. I worked with Michael 18 years. So just shy yeah. of 20 years. Um, mm -hmm. And it was an incredible ride. Um, I, I learned a ton about restaurants, um, about people, leadership, um, being a team player, food, procuring food, um, how food grows, how it's managed, how it's stored, how it's purchased. I mean, it was, it was restaurant business, um, a one-on-one accelerated <laughs> program and on and on. Um, I started as a salad cook. Mm. So garmage, um, for Michael and worked the stations, um, became his sous chef back when MK served lunch. And, um, when we eliminated lunch, I was moved to nights and then, um, um, and then moved back to purchasing and, um, became the private event chef and then did private catering at homes when we had those opportunities. And then back in the restaurant as a sous chef again, I was like <laughs> his longest running sous chef standing and then became his longest running, um, um, chef, um, standing in the restaurant up until being his partner, um, his business partner. And so, um, it was an incredible ride. And in that time, mm -hmm. I actually purchased my first property, um, mm. maybe, maybe about, about eight years into working with Michael. Um, it could have been a little shy of that, but I want to say eight years, no less than six years of working with him. I purchased my first property. He actually loaned me money, um, um, for reserves. I saved the money to buy the property, but was mm -hmm. very, very anxious about not having enough money if something went wrong. Right. And had this crazy meeting with him about why I wanted to borrow his money to make sure that my business venture didn't fail. And right. I explained it to him and he started laughing and he says, if I had only done what you're doing at your age, I'd be so much further ahead. I'd absolutely yeah. love to help you and tell me what the number is. Let me know how you're going to pay me back and you can pay me the same interest that I would make in my savings account, which was like nothing. It's like 0.2%, right? It wasn't even a whole point. And oh that was my first big loan both from a bank and from my job. And right. now I manage about 12 properties, about 12, I, I manage about 12 units in the city. And I've sold, bought rehab and sold a little less than 20 properties over the same, um, um, you know, 10 year span. I, you know, granted I'm in a very emotional state these days, but I started cheering up when you told me that because it's, in having that equity in property, that is everything. That is, that is stability. That, especially in restaurants, restaurant, the, the relationship between restaurants and real estate is so intrinsic. And I feel like the young, hiring restaurateurs coming up, young cooks, they, they don't necessarily have that. They don't understand those fundamentals of it. And so is that, and this is something that you've gotten from the beginning. And I also know how much of a mentor that you have been to so many chefs. Is this something that you have taught them along the way? So 
Okay, great. This is a great segue back in the restaurant. So um, Michael taught all of us ownership. Yeah. Ownership starting with the product from the time that you put your hands on it. Yeah. Owning that responsibility um, of caring for something, processing something, and and um, finishing something shortly before it got into the chef's hands and then out to the guest. Mm-hmm. That ownership of product extended to ownership of space. Yeah. We were required, as most uh, most young cooks or chefs preach about first in, first out, you know, conveying mm-hmm. a message about when things got here and when they when they when they leave what order that takes place and also when you take the last of something so mm-hmm. he extended that awareness to the physical space so if if something leaked or if something cracked or if something chipped um we were required to report that and not only were we required to report it um uh we understood how much it cost like how much of the restaurant's revenue was going to get um, um, reinvested into that repair or replacement. And so, um, from that space, we started building relationships with vendors. Yeah. Both food vendors and contractors. And so, if you were inclined to be, I mean, some people, you know, were rebellious, but I was one of those ones that like, I wanted to build those relationships. And so, so then the next step, um, and I may not be putting this in chronological order, but the next step was how we treated those people. Yeah. And so I remember so vividly, and I preach it now, like, you know, on a hot day, every single person that walks in the building should be off of water. Yes. Because it's just, an, it, it's, a, it's an inviting way to be hospitable. Most people will accept a beverage on a warm day. And the extension of offering that beverage is everything, everything in that moment. And so he was teaching us hospitality towards mankind, towards humanity. He wasn't teaching us hospitality um, in the intermediate stage as it related to the guests. And it was kind of just like Mr. Miyagi (laughs) <laughs> kind of practice, right? Like wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. And we're wondering when we're really going to get into a real, a live fight, you know? And then at some point we get into this fight, right? Call service. And yeah. and then these practical, you know, processes come to life. And so I, um, as I internalized this training, began to build on that. And so I started realizing because I didn't go to culinary school. So I literally coined the phrase that I took life skills and converted them into knife skills. And so <laughs> I grew up in this, in this divested community that was loud, sometimes violent and dangerous. Um, and so I needed by way of survival skills to be able to think on my feet. And so through that practice, um, um, it, restaurants felt very normal to me. They mm-hmm. didn't feel like I didn't go in the shock when other people would be standing in the corner crying, you know, because it was too much pressure 
you know, I would be like, wow, I got another shot at working that station. And it, and it wasn't to like leverage that individual's pain or, or, or um, trauma. I just responded different. And, and I had built this kind of, you know, extra layer of skin just through my communal access and through, and through the rigor in my community. And so, yeah. um, once I realized that, then I started reaching out and not just teaching my team, but teaching young adults and young potential leaders, right? That though the world might tell you that because you come from this neighborhood and you look like this and you didn't get beyond this level of schooling, I can tell you as someone who's had many successes on my way up the ladder, as well as many failures that have fueled my successes, mm -hmm. that you can get there with these skills. Because I would challenge any person in the boardroom to tell me that critical thinking, thinking under pressure, or thinking on your feet is not a skill set that's applicable in any think tank, in any political climate, or in any boardroom, right? And problem solving, which is a major process that happens in restaurants, many moments, not many days, right? <laughs> yeah, every second. It's part of the deal. How do you adjust? How nimble, how flexible are you, right, under pressure? And so these were all things that were, were um, um, built and skill sets that were practiced in my everyday existence. Well, and so, yeah. go, shoot. Well, what I'm seeing, or what, what I'm hearing here is, I wish I was seeing you. I wish I was in a room with you. And I like our face-to-face -face talks. Um, but what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is you, you're sort of approaching these buildings and people in the same way. You, you see some person or a building or something, the people for systemic and various reasons like have devalued and you're seeing the the beauty and the worth and the potential of these people and these spaces and telling them because sometimes you have to be told like sometimes it takes somebody else saying like there is value in you you're important there is beauty in you you have a strong foundation you have all of these things and you have to sort of hear or see that in order to believe it for yourself and that goes for you know property that may, has maybe been neglected or like a human being because of circumstances was just never told but that doesn't mean they don't have value and it seems like you are so good at identifying that in all these circumstances well <clears throat> thank you i appreciate the compliment i don't know exactly how good i am at it or not but i do know that it's relevant and I do know that it's a credible argument. Um, when, when I think about what's important to our training, or not even to train our training, but our developmental practices, because I often try not to use the word train. Yeah. I don't want to teach people something that they can learn and use here that only works in these types of applications. I want to develop people to be able to think and use said applications and, and um, multiple um, constructs. And so 
as I as I related my experience growing up in the inner city to restaurants, I think there are a lot of things that happen in restaurants um, that would make the world a better place. Hence the fact we opened a restaurant and named it Virtue, yeah. simply meaning of high moral standard. Um, and so there there's this there's this exchange that happens um, in in my brain and 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 in my inner being as it relates to um, um, integrity, as it relates to kindness mm-hmm. and hospitality. Um, and it, it's, it's a, it's a strong spiritual force for me, um, that I think people feel and whether they identify it as spiritual or just cool or fun or hip or trending, Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it's a tangible thing. And, um, and as, as much as we believe that love is a tangible thing. You know, like we, we don't see love. We see examples of love. Right. And we feel love. We exchange love. But you don't go outside and just, you know, buy some love. You know, you don't walk <laughs> in the, into your favorite store because you're depleted of love that week and just try on love in a few different sizes. And wear it would be great home. if we could. I could use, it would be <laughs> could awesome use something like that. Could. It would be. But it would also, everything has a pro and con. We would probably abuse it. Uh, because it's so rare, yeah. Um, and it shouldn't be, but yeah. because it's so rare, or so so, because there's work involved in the space of love, it's challenging yeah. for us to get there. And so, um, rather than go down the path of philosophy, um, you know, my construct has a lot to do with, um, you know, we opened this this crazy little restaurant. On Chicago South Side. With beautiful art. Every, I'm sorry? With, with beautiful art. <laughs> Thank you. With beautiful art. And and the space has taken a life on its own, a shape of its own. And, um, you know, we were advised not to do this project. I was advised not to raise as much money as I raised um, in the case that something went wrong. And obviously, we're in the middle of something uh-huh. going terribly wrong. Holy um, I was I was challenged on every side about you know the concept what it looked like what the construct was what what was going to meet the market whether the neighborhood was ripe or not um whether the customer base would embrace what we're doing and the core of this was my life going full circle um I'm a I'm a person of faith which I'm sure you're probably hearing some of the things that I'm saying yes. um and so virtues align with faith practices. Um, my, I, 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 I contribute to three communities and, and I draw from three communities. One community being, um, um, the community that I live in. Mm-hmm. Um, another one being, um, the hospitality community mm-hmm. and the last being a community of folk that practice a faith or, or belief. Yeah. And so, so all of those things show up in some form in the word, in just the title, mm-hmm. virtue. And so, um, hospitality for me was first presented as a familial practice and then became a familiar practice. Mm-hmm. My great 
great grandmother. No, my grandmother, let me think, get this right. My grandmother, my great grandmother, my great grandmother would receive me in her home and she would do these check-ins. And these check-ins um, um, were done in a way that, as I look back, allowed me to understand that I mattered to her. Yes. And it put me as the most important thing in that moment with her, even in a crowded room. And so when I think about that space, how kind it was, yeah. how much resolve was in that space, how intentional that space was, and how unforced that space felt. That to me feels like the best restaurant I could ever go to. Oh. It feels like I would walk in the door and the host or hostess or concierge would smile upon greeting me as if they were excited to see me, even though we've never met. It would, it would allow me to feel like I was being hugged, even though it's not appropriate for a stranger to touch me without warrant. Yeah. It would feel like I would be treated by every person that came into contact with me. Like they were advocating for me to have the best possible experience. Even if I walked in the door hangry, didn't know what I wanted, was nervous or embarrassed about my allergens, Mm -hmm. had never been to a place like this before and was just as awkward as I could possibly be. And the truth is, for most Americans, that's what childhood is like. Yes. That right? feeling and so, your skin is... Right. You don't even know who you are. You don't yeah. know where you're at most of the time. And the places that you're at are familiar, like school and home and family yeah. gatherings, and amongst your friends. Every day you're trying to think about who you are and where you're at and what you want to become. And the reality is, is a lot of people are in their 40s and 50s still having those same experiences. And how do we embrace those ex experiences? Now, one would say it's not the job of restaurants, right, to care for the world. I would challenge them by saying, well, then why in the heck do we take on the burden of raising money for every single cause possible outside of our own? This is true. Like it, it took COVID for us to realize that we, we had the power, the voice, and the platform to now begin to advocate for ourselves, mm -hmm. for our brothers and sisters that are challenged in this most atrocious time in business and community. And so why wouldn't we embrace people that have chosen to travel, whether it's two doors away or two counties or two continents away, mm -hmm. and they've arrived in our space? Why wouldn't we treat people like guests? And so that whole sense of ownership and hospitality in the form of a seed, my chef, my mentor, my business partner teaching me, that every single person in this 
that walks into this building on a warm day should be offered water, translated into this thing that grew and grew and grew. And it kept absorbing more experience and it kept reflecting on things that were more meaningful. And I said to myself, if I could open a place where I could just have the best team, i.e. some managers that I've worked with before and invested in and have invested in me, and we could then extend hospitality to a new team, develop some folks that maybe want to do something else, but need to do something, actors and actresses in waiting, real estate you know, professionals in waiting, mechanics in waiting, whatever they are, right? If we could just get it right with our team, it could become so rich yeah. and so infectious that it could transfer to every guest that walked in the door. And I did not expect for it to happen this soon. I thought it would be like a five-year plan and <laughs> it caught fast. It caught so fast that as every new restaurant has glitches, yeah. you know, makes mistakes with food when you're training people. Chefs don't catch every single error. They they might say they do, but I don't know a chef that catches every single nuance that happens, especially in their in their in their beginning stages of that restaurant. Right. You can train all you want to train. You can do all you want to do. There's always a margin of human human error. And so what we did is we we infused or we we allowed this a lot this this space for hospitality that gave people the right that gave them permission to be empathetic yeah and to allow forgiveness and so we found ourselves apologizing to people who would be apologizing to us it was the weirdest <laughs> thing i come to your table and say i'm really really sorry um my server just informed me that your steak is slightly over um uh we have another one working we like to leave this one here and there will be another one out in the next couple of minutes. Um, and they will be like, oh, my God. No, 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 no. Um, I'm sorry for even bringing it up. I love the steak. It's actually perfect. This is the way I like to eat my steak. Um, but I usually order it a little less um, mm -hmm. to leave room, you know. And we're like, well, we want to let you know we got another one going. So you can enjoy half of that one and we're going to take it away. <laughs> and and, 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 and sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes people would say fine. Right. And then other times people would say, no, I'm serious. I really do like my steak a little more. And so there would be this exchange, this rich exchange that allowed room versus this hard line that restaurant operators and chefs generally get, which is, I don't understand why I'm spending so much money and, and you guys can't figure out how to get it right, even though <laughs> this is day number 10. <laughs> and then on the back end, then they rant, you know, in a moment like now, and they say, I don't understand why you guys don't train and develop more people. I don't understand why you guys wouldn't give my nephew a chance who's a chef classically trained and fresh out of culinary school. I don't understand why you guys take my money, but you don't do anything for the community. And all we're saying is, I don't understand why when we're training those people, you guys don't have more empathy for their mistakes because that's your nephew I just hired or your son or your daughter. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. I've been thinking a lot about empathy and grace recently. And, uh, 
in one way an abundance of and another way a, a lack thereof when i see people complaining right now about any kind of sort of restaurant you know perceived misstep during all of this i think these people don't deserve restaurants <laughs> if you're going to complain we're in the middle of a pandemic that has upended absolutely every possible you know, system and life that, that we know. And so many restaurant people are struggling just to be able to have enough to eat right now. And I see entitled customers who maybe were taught along the way somehow that, that they should be accommodated in every single way, not extending that grace to people. And I, you know, how are you coping with that? How are you coping with people right now? Actually, let's, let's go back to like, what is your restaurant doing right now? But to uh, cope with COVID. Um, we are taking one day at a time. Mm -hmm. That is another phrase passed down <laughs> through my family. Um, and usually from the eldest person in the room who had the most experience. And what that allows us to do is not get so overwhelmed by what could happen tomorrow. Um, we're, we're not naive. We recognize that we should have some preparedness for tomorrow. Um, but a friend taught me that they've learned in life that the more prepared they are, the luckier they get. <laughs> and that, and yep. that friend, that friend's name is um, Peter Bino. Tell me about Peter. And, and um, Peter Bino has been a very successful businessman in Chicago for many years um, and has worked very, very diligently to provide um, <clears throat> um, equitable service um, throughout his professional career. Um, he, I mean, he's an easy person to look up, um, built the, um, um, the, the Sox park in Chicago, mm -hmm. which is a huge endeavor. Um, he's been in, he's been a, um, money manager for many years, um, amongst many other things, holds a law, uh, active law degree, um, and was a great, great, um, guest of MK turned friend over a period of exchanges and, and, and in a huge support of mine personally. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> one would one would ask the question, Chef, how could you be prepared tomorrow if you're not spending a lot of time thinking about it? And the truth is my preparedness for tomorrow happens today. Yeah. And that's that's the clear statement. And so um, um, I don't get prepared for tomorrow thinking about tomorrow. I get prepared to, for tomorrow actively uh, focused on today and, and, and the best version of myself that takes place today informs my tomorrow. Yeah. And, um, I think many times we, um, you know, just naturally get so caught up in the future that it makes us anxious. It overwhelms us. It even depresses us because we, you know, when you get anxious, you start creating scenarios in your head that may not even come into light. I call it borrowing trouble. <laughs> you call it bowing? Bar borrowing trouble. <laughs> oh, borrowing trouble. Yes. Yes. And so, um, 
So that's how we've operated. And we also operate under a really kind of corny way in the restaurant. <laughs> bring it, bring it. <laughs> um, so we take the model of the ant. Yeah. So ants prepare for the worst possible scenario every day <laughs> that they're in existence. Yeah. And interestingly enough, I've yet to hear that we are losing the population of ants. They can be a very uh, um, 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 invasive species, you know, like you get one ant in your house, you look up, you got a thousand, Yep. you know, and they're not as bad as like cockroaches, right? but they are very annoying, like <laughs> mosquitoes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, and, <laughs> they're just serving their queen. <laughs> But. Yeah, or maybe even not even mosquitoes, maybe like like spiders, because spiders, you know, like house house spiders don't really bite. Yeah, you know, but they definitely leave a trail. Oh, you yeah. know, and 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 the trail of ants is other ants, and so they just <laughs> they populate you. Um, and so we we are we're thinking about you know what what it means to be preserving. Yeah, both every bit of capital that we can, thinking about food in that same practical sense. You know, if if we knew we only had 30 more days, what would we want to be in the restaurant? Right. Um, much like if we were locked at home, what would we like to have at home? Um, uh, rice is a staple. It's not just a staple and in times of resourcefulness, it's a staple for three quarters of the world. Um, beans, right? Dry very well, rehydrate very well. Um, proteins obviously have a shorter sh shelf life. And so we're a lot more particular on what proteins we want to serve. And all of that survival, interestingly enough, suits our need as a Southern restaurant because many of our ancestors um, in, this, in this country worked in agriculture. Yeah. And for a long time, we didn't have refrigeration. And so we had to get really creative with fermentations by way of vinegars and, and, and jarring items currently called canning <laughs> and pickles right, of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And we ate more vegetation than we did meat or, or animal-based protein for a long time. Um, and so now at a time where, you know, Southern or soul food get a bad rap because they're heavy and dense, we're, we're really excited about cooking more vegetables and, and changing the, the center of the plate to vegetable-oriented dishes and also um, um, protein um, opportunities that, that just apply or allow space for more vegetation on the plate. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And now back to our conversation with Eric Williams. I remember when we were talking about virtue, we were sitting like in a hotel lobby in New York and you were talking about how you wanted this food to really 
be familiar, but nourish people in maybe a different way than they'd had some of these dishes before. Because, you know, historically, a lot of these dishes are made for sustenance and they're made for, you know, and for pleasure and and for survival, but they weren't necessarily made with some of the health concerns in mind. And you... Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Put that front and center. Yes, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> you know, you, you, you hear a lot about branding when you, when you open restaurants and, um, and when you're trying to create a name or a vision. <clears throat> um, but I, to be frank, I, I wanted to spend more time thinking about what our mission was. Like, what was the purpose of this place? What, what were we really trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm really humbled that um, Virtue has been able to be what it is. Um, not just for myself and for my family, but for our community at large and for um, um, our team. And so Virtue has allowed us an opportunity to create stability in a time that has been very uncertain um, for many people, probably for most people. And um, I I wouldn't tell anyone that I'm stable. Um, but I do have a place that allows me to press reset for mm-hmm. the time being. And I say the time being because, because we're, we're not through this thing yet. No. And, um, and so because I recognize that, um, I'm gaining, gaining a much, um, greater sense of what it means to not just take one day at a time, but also to not take anything for granted. Yeah. Um, you know, despite what anybody's political views are, um, I, I had the chance in my lifetime to witness something that I thought was pretty profound. And it was it was when President Obama got sworn in um, for a second term. Mm-hmm. And he walked off of the stage and there's like it looks like there's a corridor or a tunnel that you enter into. Um, um, before you disappear to the public. Mm-hmm. And he grabbed his family and said, wait a minute, let's turn around and look at this. Oh. We're, nev- we're never going to see this again. And so it wasn't he wouldn't get a chance to exit the stage again. You know, he may have had the honor of sitting behind another president, but he would mm-hmm. never see it again as the president. Yeah. And I wouldn't shun anybody that's open restaurants. I wouldn't tell anybody that I got it all figured out. But from that experience and from that opportunity to hear that and witness that, mm-hmm. we're entering into our space every day, understanding 
we may not ever see this space the way that we got a chance to see it that day. And so um, we are enjoying the space, interestingly enough, more than we would um, during what we would have considered ordinary or regular times. We're not Mm -hmm. missing the opportunity to engage one another. We're pushing hard to make sure that the morale is up and that people understand that we consider this place safe space. We have had our team commit to one another um, by way of wearing masks when they are out of the building, when they have company at their house um, in their engagements. And I'm not walking around looking through anyone's keyhole trying to figure out what they do when they're at home. Um, but, But if you walk in this building without a mask on, and you're one of our team members, everybody gets uncomfortable right away and they make you know it because that's yeah. the indicator that you have, that you've, you've breached the agreement. And yeah. <clears throat> um, though we wear masks in the building, 99% of the time, 95% of the time, there are times when I take mine off because I'm tasting food a lot. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's just very challenging to go up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. <laughs> And, and it's a risk. Um, yeah. I, I don't handle food. Um, um, and, and, uh, my chef's been, my, my chef de cuisine, Damar Brown has been doing the majority of the expediting alongside my pastry chef. And they mm-hmm. are really, really great. Um, um, and so they have, um, been really leading the charge and allowing me to have moments like this where I can freely um, talk about what we do and, and, and engage. Um, and, and I tend to do mo- uh, most of my work these days, um, uh, behind the scenes, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and allow them to, you know, kind of take the forefront. But that being stated, um, you know, we get here every day, we work hard in spite of all this challenging us. And, and, and that work has a reward at the end of each day, knowing that we've a survived another day that mm-hmm. we did the best possible job that we could. And when we fall short, it informs again, our tomorrows and allows us to work harder, you know, the next day. And, um, and we do that with one another, we do it as a team. Yeah. And there's, there's something about that component that, um, you know, it reminds you that you're not alone. Um, it, it, it fights the things in our minds and in our, in our souls that challenge our very being. Um, and it reminds everyone on our team that they matter. Yeah. Reminds me every day that I matter. Um, because if I don't matter to anybody outside this building, if I don't matter to anyone that takes another interview or, or that walks past me on the street, I matter to these guys. And they, they prove that by showing up and showing up not for me, but, but, but for the team, you know, and, um, the community has been so great to us. I mean, like, I, I just can't even go down that path because it's so emotional. Um, no, um, it, it's, we, can, we can go there. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, here's the thing about a pandemic. Our lives are in each other's hands. I mean, I, I just, you know, this, I hadn't talked about it on the podcast yet. I lost my mother to COVID less than two weeks ago. And she was 
you know, in a nursing home in South Carolina um, on lockdown since March. And the action of some stranger out there let the virus get into her nursing home and she died. And that's that's the thing is like some, you know, we all have to care for each other. And the, the pandemic drives it home that, you know, we are, I don't, I don't know how to articulate this. I'm not super articulate right now um, in, in, in my grief, but uh, you know, there are caretaking measures that all of us just have to, to take to make sure everybody is safe, whether that is wearing a mask, whether that is standing up for Black Lives Matter, whether it is, you know, publicly living and, and showing your values and, and your virtues, you know, it's such an important thing. And I think the thing I love so much about what you've created at Virtue, it is such a public statement of your caretaking of one another and the fact that you started with your own people. You kept your people safe during this. You kept their money safe. You kept their health safe. And I, I'd love to talk about how you managed to to do that, how you managed to, you know, ensure you hired you hired people back. You 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 got the money there. How can you talk about some of the process of that and some of those caretaking measures? So I'm happy to talk about it, but I have to be 100% candid. Um, yeah. we, we, we feel very fortunate and we're humbled by that fortune. The truth is our, our space is not small. We've got about 4,000 square feet of restaurant. Wow. Um, wow. And so, and that does not include space um, um, for storage in our basement. Um, so, you know, we took a chance on taking on that much space. Um, um, there's something to be said about having smaller spaces um, pre-COVID. You know, they, yeah. they have a different energy. They're always kind of bustling. Um, um, you know, you have to turn a few more times if that's what you're trying to do. Or if you're, you know, ultra fine dining, you don't have to turn. Um, um, in this particular scenario, we, we just, you know, we locked up. Um, by having more space. So that allows us, um, you know, to take in a few more people. Um, but um, it also allows for a larger footprint around the building uh, because we do a, we're do we doing a lot of outdoor seating, which has never, ever been my goal, mind you. Yeah, um, I was reading about that. Yeah, and so, so that being stated, um, um, you know, we, we watched Seattle for the first week or so quickly pivot and shift gears. And I was like, man, those guys are crazy. When I first started, started seeing what they were doing right. and I was, you know, you're kind of, you're in that, you're still in that state of fear, which is the, the appropriate word. It's like, yeah. I can't do that. You know, we call it ego, but it's just really fear. It's not a yeah. matter of what, what, you know, what you wouldn't stoop to. It's a matter of what you can't imagine doing. And, and so, you know, this was going on for days and it was getting worse. And then it, it just hit me all at once that it's, it's not about what I want to do or what I can't imagine myself doing. I just got to get out here and do it because I owe it to 35 team members. Yeah. To find a solution. Like they don't, they don't call you leader because you can't make decisions. And so right. there was a chance that I was going to fail 
if I didn't make a decision. So if I was going to have a chance of failure, why not lessen the probability of failure by acting? And through that action, I would balance the scales a little bit and have a chance to succeed. And we're not successful. We are successful yesterday. Right. I don't know what the heck's going to happen today. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But we were successful yesterday and we were successful the day before. And the measure is different. Profitability yes. is different. When we opened um, um, during shelter in place, then my business partner and I took a couple of days, crunched the numbers, figured out what, again, reassessed what our what our break even would be and said, we got to do this so that folk have some savings. Yeah. Then we found out, we just thought that was the right thing to do. Okay. We found out seven days into it that unemployment was overwhelmed in Illinois. Oh yeah. So even if you got furloughed, you couldn't get money. Mm -hmm. So now we're on the right side of decision-making because we are, we still have people who are employed um, um, as we work through this. We had some people who didn't believe it was real. None of us knew how, how serious it was because the reporting was just so sporadic. Yeah. Um, and biased. You know, we were told not to buy masks. Yeah. And biased. We were told not to buy masks. Then we were told we everybody had to have a mask as supply um, became available. Um, I mean, it was just you heard the news like uh, we all heard it, so I don't need to I don't need to rehash the news. But there was just a lot of information, a lot of misinformation, and so what the space allowed us to do is show up to a place, present our wares every day, and lean on one another. We leaned on one another as it related to venting, as it related to our fears, as it related to sharing information, as it related to um, 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 our frustrations, yeah. sometimes our rage, our, our, our concerns, our bright ideas. And we were able to work through that in a way that felt healthy to us. I don't know yeah. if that works for anybody else. It worked for us. And so... Um, I encouraged a friend to do the same who reached out to me and owns a restaurant and then later had to call them back and apologize because I realized they had a 90-year-old living with them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I am so sorry. Like I was, and let me just tell you, I was pretty convincing when I was talking to that person <laughs> about the importance for chefs to stand up right now. If we don't stand up now, when are we going to stand up? And then later I had to think about all the other variables. I have the benefit of working and then going home to my wife and my child and my child being the one person who we were the most concerned about, um, um, you know, extreme illness, more, you know, or, or, or extreme, um, um, extremely challenged to recover. But I wasn't so worried about my wife. My wife and I had talked about it. Um, and interestingly enough, my son prayed a prayer one night that my wife sent to me and he prayed, dear God, please don't let my father get Corona yeah, because he needs to cook for people. Oh. And I don't know what inspired that. 
you know, everybody thinks their kid is smart. So <laughs> I try not to fall into that category. I just try to appreciate the things that happen and appreciation and being convinced that your kid is a prodigy are two different things. Yeah. Um, but it spoke to me. Yeah. And it helped me realize that as people were frantic and as people were on the brink of mass hysteria, that it was important for something to feel normal yeah, or for something to feel hospitable as they were dealing with their challenges. And for me, that hospitable space was the giving of food, the sharing of, of a meal. And so we made those meals affordable. Um, and it was simple food. It was like meatloaf, mashed potatoes, broccoli. Um, yeah, you know, right. Like it was, it was anything you could have gotten at, at anybody's house, you know, stopping by on a Monday. You that's know, it was a lot I of Monday wanted, meals. That's what I want to eat right now. I, you know, I'm not looking to sit down for a tasting menu or have anything made with tweezers. I just, want a sloppy casserole, <laughs> you know, meatloaf, all yeah. of those things. And that, that nourishing thing, it's so important. Are you remembering to eat during this time? Oh, yeah, I was remembering to eat too much. So <laughs> so I've just recently started trying to remember how not to eat and, <laughs> and how to be a lot more active. Right. I self-soothe and I self-soothe with alcohol and I self-soothe with, um, um, with food. And, um, you know, it could be a toxic cocktail yeah. if you leave me alone too, too long. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I, I do, um, I do acknowledge that I eat and drink for a living. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and I've been fortunate to not have a alcohol problem, um, the entire time I've worked in restaurants and, and that's not my addiction speaking. Um, I, I periodically go weeks and months without drinking. Um, and I periodically indulge. And um, um, I just try to find time to give it a break. Yeah. Um, and I also do the same thing with food. Like there are times when it's gonna be a, a fried chicken and <laughs> Chicago Italian beef month. Like, oh, yeah. like I am like smashing junk food. I'm a junk food junkie. Um, <laughs> And then there are times when, like, I just take that last bite and it's like, man, I haven't eaten vegetables, like, enjoyed a salad in, like, 22 days. Like, yeah. and then I'll, I'll, the pendulum will swing and I'll just jump in on the other side. And, and, and all I want is, like, grilled chicken and, and a salad or, or hummus and, and bread and pickled vegetables. And, you know, and I start to really remember, like, like these other flavors, you know, and fermented green onions and, 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 you know, and fish. And so, mm -hmm. um, that's how I cope, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. it's not a perfect plan. The restaurant wasn't a perfect plan. Um, we just recognize that we're reset. Our place is reset for a lot of people and, and it's also reset for us and we try our best not to lose sight of the fact that it's recess or not recess reset yeah. for us we yeah. get to come here and do a hard reset and then go back into you know fighting the challenges in our lives and the, and, and the challenges in the world 
And, you know, fortunately, we were able to do that immediately during our shelter in place. And then we got a little bogged down with taking care of, of people and hearing that hospital workers didn't have enough equipment um, um, and, and their morale was getting low and they were facing the bigger challenge, you know, like, you know, we at least only had a certain amount of people coming to our door. Anybody could come to the hospital with COVID and, and the numbers, like, what are they going to do? Just start turning people away. So they were extremely overwhelmed. Um, and we knew that in that, in that space of reset, that food, you know, is a vehicle for it. So, so we made it our focus. We, we don't have the capacity to serve the community full time and serve a hospital. So we yeah. just made the, 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 the focus, the hospital. Um, yeah. and we got some, some snarky comments, um, and some sarcastic comments. But even with the snarky comments and sarcastic comments, people gave. So someone would say, you know, um, I was just starting to get used to you guys cooking um, these meals and have my, you know, and this is going to ruin my program at home now. Uh, <laughs> but um, what's your GoFundMe account? Because I'm going to send you guys money because I'm right. being selfish and you're doing the right thing. You know, it was like they took a little bit of a jab. And then, yeah. and then said that keep doing what you're doing. Like you guys are models. And, and so even the jazz felt good. I mean, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, we had, we had someone send us a note. Like this was the most grounding note I've gotten to date that said, I got my stimulus check. You guys are no longer serving to the public. I don't know what to do with it. I don't need it. Can I send you my sim stimulus check and you guys apply it to meals for healthcare workers? Yeah. And I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is where we're at now. Okay. <laughs> and they then we opened back up. They trusted. I'm sorry. You. They also trusted you with it because that's because they knew you would do the right thing with it. Yeah, but you know, sometimes you don't feel like you should be that trusted. You know, it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, you're sending me your stimulus check. Like, I mean, and it's not like it was like some, it wasn't like they were sending me millions and millions of dollars, but <laughs> you just don't like, we weren't working to that space. So we just didn't expect it. It was like we were overwhelmed with generosity. Yeah. Um, and again, it was grounding. And so we opened back up. And three young ladies walk up, and I'm when I say young, I mean between the ages of 17 and 19. Yeah. And they ask for the owner. And my business partner is standing there, and he says, "You're speaking with one of them. How can I help you?" And they said, "You're the owner." He says, "Yes, I'm one of the partners." They said, "Okay. Well, we're the girls that give, and we've raised money in our circle to give to restaurants that we would like to see stay in our community." Oh. And gave him an envelope full of cash. Wow. And said, please do what you all need to do with this. Though that was the criterion. Do what you need to do with money we've raised. And we're like, you kidding me? Everybody's like running because our, our place has windows. We're all running to the windows once we hear the story to try to see, get a glimpse of these young ladies that just <laughs> had this like enormous act of kindness. You know, we were trying to see them before we even knew how much money was in the in, in the in the envelope. It was just nuts. We had we had angel donors call us, ask us how much our payroll was, 
and say, we want to offset your payroll for a certain amount of time. You know, I, I mean, we had, we had our landlord um, participating and trying to support the space. And granted, we still don't know what's going on tomorrow. You know, <laughs> we know. Like, like, yeah, like we don't know how much more help we're going to need. We don't know how much support we're going to need. But we do know that we were successful yesterday. If I said one thing before before we close out, I would have to say that I couldn't be any more blessed to have such an incredible team. Um, because those guys are the leaders of the team, but, um, you know, every single person that shows up here, especially now that's sacrificing or taking a risk, um, with, by way of their health to make sure that every person on our team is ensured an opportunity to, to survive this moment, to be cared for, right. To be sustained. Yeah. We still have employees at home or, or team members, as I would call them. Um, uh, we still have team members at home that are being funded through the restaurant oh, wow. because they're immune deficient yeah. and we, we won't allow them in the building, Yeah, you know, and, um, it, 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 it takes a different kind of person to work every day for someone that they don't know well enough to call them next to kin. Um, but you know, we fight for our team. I mean, and, and, and it's important to us. And again, this is our safe space. And this is where we pass reset. Eric, you're blessed by them and I'm blessed to have you in my life. And we're and the industry is blessed to have you in it. And I, I know you have a busy restaurant to run and, and I, I couldn't be more grateful for, for your time and for your words. And just thank you for being you. Thank you so much to our guest today, Eric Williams. And I really hope that everybody gets to experience uh, <laughs> once this is all over because I know this has to get to a point when it's over I hope you really get to experience that hospitality and generosity and kindness of Eric and of virtue in person I mean he's he is such a special person you know personally professionally and and to the industry you know he's he's pretty humble about a lot of things, but uh, you know, the people who I hear talking about him have, uh, you know, expressed his tremendous impact, um, you know, on, on their personal lives, on their restaurant lives, on the industry as a whole. I'm pretty heartbroken that, you know, that he is not able to, um, you know, as we were talking about at the top of the podcast, experience uh, that, that moment in the spotlight uh, with with the James Beard Awards, um, he was nominated for Best Chef uh, Great Lakes, and um, to my mind, he's he's so deserving of of that and and so so much more. But you know, I I really hope you get to sit down and have some of his food and get to meet this really incredible man. And um, in the intern in the uh, notes for this, we will have all of his handles and how to find him and get in touch with him. So this uh, podcast is part of Food & Wine Pro, as I mentioned at the beginning, and it's a really, to me, important part of what Food & Wine does. Um, it's a section of the site, it is this podcast, it is a part of the magazine, and it is, once we resume having in-person events, it is a big part of that too, because we realize the, the restaurant industry is is going through really unprecedented uh, times right now, and it's really it's moment to moment. Um, who is going to uh, survive this? And you know who's going to be back in business? Who um, 
who's going to make it through, how it's going to look when this is over. And everybody is really just, they're just trying to keep their heads above water. And we really wanted to be open and, and share the stories behind that and share the humanity behind it. And you can find a lot of those conversations at Food and Wine Pro. So that's foodandwine.com slash FWPro. And while you're there, if you can sign up for the newsletter, we make it easy for you. Um, we try to at least. Um, our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, writes a fantastic newsletter every week. Um, and it's backed up by our incredible uh, associate restaurant editor, Osep Babur, who uh, she is the mastermind behind getting together so much of the news you need to know from the industry this week. Um, and I, uh, you know, usually uh, list the latest podcasts and stuff. So we we try to compile some words of wisdom uh, from folks in the industry and from our own Kelsey Youngman in the Test Kitchen, who is a certified meditation instructor. We include um, the wisdom that she has shared with us at our Monday morning meetings and sets the tone for the the week ahead. And if you subscribe to this, it comes to your inbox on Fridays and it's just right there for you. And uh, we'd like to hear from you um, about who, what voices you would like to hear amplified and who we might not know about. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm cat.kinsman at foodandwine.com. I'm on Twitter at kitten with a whip. And really just let us know who you think really deserves to have a spotlight shown on them. And we will do our best to uh, get in touch with them. And it's just, it's really important work to me right now and to our entire food and wine team. Um, we have an incredible new producer, Antara Senna, who is, is really, she's had to learn how to do this job in isolation and she's doing a really fantastic job of it. And she's a pleasure to work with. And thank you so much, Antara. And um, on a personal note, uh, you probably heard me mention in the podcast that I lost my mother to COVID um, in the last week and a half. And, you know, the food and wine team has shown me tremendous grace uh, in, in letting me, you know, do what I need to do. They sent, in lieu of flowers, they sent a box of vegetables to my house, which is the, just the kindest possible thing. It's hard to feed yourself during uh, times like this. And especially absent all of the usual rituals um, that people get to participate in when you are mourning the loss of, of somebody close to you. And I'm saying all this to beg you, really, um, wear a mask, take care of the people around you, um, do what you can to keep other people safe and healthy. Um, my mother didn't have a choice in the matter. Uh, she was in a nursing home on lockdown in South Carolina. And uh, it was brought into her and, and she... <sighs> You know, and she paid the price and people in our family are paying the price and the people we love are paying the price for that too. And it might seem like a thing you don't want to do, wearing a mask or taking some of these precautions or maybe not getting together for big group gatherings right now, um, all of that, but please do it. It, it really has a, a human cost to it. And the sooner that we can all put that care um, out there, the sooner we can all get back to some semblance of life and get back to restaurants and whatever the new and beautiful incarnation of them is going to be. We all love restaurants. This is why you're listening to this podcast. And this is why I do the job I do. And it's just, it's really important. And most importantly, take good care of yourself until the next time. <laughs>